You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 40 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, I am talking to Carlos Tanner. Carlos lives in Peru, where he runs the Ayahuasca Foundation. And we will be talking about Ayahuasca, Icaros, shamanism, diets or dietas, and many other things. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So... Uh, Tell everybody who you are and why you are on the podcast. Uh, well, my name is Carlos Tanner. I'm the program director for the Ayahuasca Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization based out of Iquitos, Peru, in the Amazon rainforest. And um, I've been living down here for close to 12 years. Um, the first four years, I lived with a Corandero and uh, then about seven years ago, I started the Ayahuasca Foundation, uh, which works with the Shipibo Coranderos, one particular family, basically. Um, and yeah, I've seen over 700 people, close to 800 people come through to receive treatment. And I'm also the, the admin of the Ayahuasca Facebook group, which currently has over 38,000. By the time this podcast gets released, it'll probably have over 40,000 members and so yeah I've seen a lot and heard a lot and I think I have developed a perspective that may enable Westerners to be able to understand a different paradigm the indigenous paradigm with which the tradition of ayahuasca and corinderismo takes place. How did your journey start? Uh, how did you discover ayahuasca and, and this in the beginning? Well, I went to Peru as a tourist in 2000 and went to Machu Picchu like so many tourists do. And um, in Cusco at the time, I, I guess that's when I heard of ayahuasca. Um, there was kind of like a little bit of tourism there and mention of ayahuasca, but I didn't really think that it was something that I wanted to do outside of the Amazon rainforest because it was such like a, you know, a tradition done inside the Amazon rainforest by the indigenous people of the rainforest. And but I piqued my curiosity, so when I came back, I started doing more research about it, and that made me want to try it more. But coincidentally, or not coincidentally, I also started getting sick. Um, I started developing a digestive problem that caused me to throw up every morning. My digestion was really messed up. Uh, I went to several doctors and specialists and uh, no one could tell me what was wrong with me. What was strange was that everyone seemed to suggest that something different was wrong with me and that was very confusing. So I began looking for alternatives and eventually that kind of led me back to ayahuasca. Um, and then through some synchronicities, I found myself in Peru again, only this time going into the Amazon rainforest to be, to receive treatment from a corandero and some other plants. And, and yeah, I was healed in two weeks and the healing was one of the most fascinating processes of my life because I was actively involved in the process and engaged in the process. And in fact, I kind of feel like I healed myself. Um, through the visionary processes that occurred during ayahuasca ceremonies. And it was at that time that the Corandero that I was drinking with invited me to live with him. Uh, he said that I had the potential to be a healer, and so he invited me to be his student. And my experiences were so profound at that time that I thought that this was what I should do. So I accepted it. Offer and six months later, I moved back to Peru to live, and I lived with him for four years and uh, studied with him and witnessed many amazing healings and tried to learn as much as I could, um, and then eventually decided to move on to a couple other teachers and hopefully 
in search of like the ideal teacher, which is who I found um, in my current teacher, Don Enrique, and together we formed the Ayahuasca Foundation. Are you also developing uh, your own Icarus? Uh, I mean, I have definitely heard my own melodies. Um, you know, there's there's like four different ways to learn Icarus um, or to obtain Icarus, I guess. Um, one of the ways, which would be the most common way, is to have your teacher teach you the, the Icarus. Um, I think every time a student starts out, they're... Um, their teacher teaches them or they learn the egos of their teachers. Um, the second or that would be the most common, I guess the next um, common would be to hear them and to be given them by spirits and that's something that usually doesn't happen right away because it involves building relationships with spirits first. Um, and then the most incredible way, I guess, would be that they're simply divined where they just appear. There's no actual like learning process involved. Um, in the second example, like oftentimes you're, you hear the Ikaro being sung or a, a spirit is there with you in the jungle or wherever um, singing the Ikaro to you or for you but you still have to like listen to it and learn it kind of the same way that you would if your teacher was singing it whereas the the divination form is it's just there like you just open your mouth and all of a sudden it's there um, and that I guess would be the highest form or perhaps the most powerful Ikaro that you have the most powerful maybe would be the the ones that you learn from the plant spirits directly and the third most powerful from the ikaros you learn from your teacher and then the fourth would be that you can simply write an ikaro yourself the same way you might write a song and that might be considered the least powerful although that's really a generalization obviously if you learn an incredible ikaro from your teacher it could be one of the most powerful Icaros that you'll ever work with regardless of the method that you learned it from. When you were healed from your digestion problem, did you see the illness or the healing visually inside you? Yeah, I did. I, um, I went into the fourth ceremony determined that I would heal myself and so my spirit left my body at, that, at a point in that ceremony and I was able to turn around at first and just look at my stomach but I was looking at it from the outside and I you know was not very familiar with the processes of what I was capable of I guess and it was only my fourth ceremony um, I guess I wanted to have x-ray vision and it didn't wasn't really working for me so I decided to shrink my spirit down small enough to just go inside my stomach and down through my throat into my stomach I'm sorry, through my mouth and down through my throat into my stomach. Um, so then I found myself like inside my own stomach and that's when I encountered this creature that was like a squid and um, it had used its tentacles to kind of clog up the passageway out of my stomach and allowed the waters to, this like murky water to form so that it could live inside my stomach and I quickly realized that that wasn't supposed to be there and pried each suction cup of its tentacles off the walls of my stomach and the, um, my intestines and, and then I removed it. And right after I removed it, I, I didn't have the symptoms again and I never had them after. So yeah, that's what the fascination I had with the healing process that it could happen in that way. It was just really fascinating to me and that was a big motivation for me to decide to come back and live here and study this tradition. One of the most amazing purges I've had myself uh, when you vomit, that is, that kind of purge, is because I, I don't like to vomit but you have to. <laughs> and uh, But one, one of them was completely dry and uh, uh, it was also amazing because I thought I was gonna have a big vomit, but it came out dry, which was I mean I was happy that I didn't have to suffer through it. But it also felt it was the vomit that felt the most um, like it exercised something out of me. It was the final like vomit of many 
previous ceremonies. Have you ever had this kind of dry purge? Uh, I guess so. It's uh, there's so many like different types of purges, you know. Uh, so I have definitely like I can think of times when I my mouth was open, you know, and there everything that goes along with a purge was there, except that nothing was nothing physical at least was coming out of my mouth. And so, yeah, that's certainly something that I can relate to. This ayahuasca foundation you started, because there are many ayahuasca centers in uh, and around Iquitos, I guess that's where you are. Uh, uh, what's, what makes yours different from the rest? Uh, one of the, I guess what we're the only center that really... Um, our passion is education. We focus heavily on education, so I'm not aware of other programs that do this. If there is, maybe there's one or two, but I, I, I'm not aware of them. Uh, we offer educational courses for people that feel called to be uh, a corandero, that feel like it is their calling, the same way that I had my experiences lead me. Um, so I. A long time ago, I guess it was like eight years ago, I decided to try to make it, the process easier for people that had a similar situation like I did, um, to be able to learn and study with the Corandero and follow that path without having to just kind of figure things out. So I created a program that I call the six-week initiation course, and uh, now we have a 10-week advanced initiation course, which we started three years ago. Um, and actually our, our next 10-week advanced initiation course starts in less than two weeks from now, um, although perhaps by the time this podcast comes out it will have finished. But, um, but yeah, so we, we stress heavily the education, uh, we teach the, the tradition, and even in our healing retreats we spend a lot of time teaching the processes because for one, I mean, we've found that even if you're a patient and don't feel like it's your vocation or your calling to be a corandero, understanding how the tradition works and what the perspectives are and, and the techniques and the methods involved can really enhance your own healing experience. And we've seen a big difference in the, the benefit that people get when education is also included because it helps them to engage in the healing process as well. and. And that's one of the things that makes ayahuasca such an incredible medicine is that, that it helps each person to individually engage in the healing process themselves and the level at which that engagement happens and the, the level of participation in the process that occurs usually is directly correlated to the level of benefit that is received. Is the, the Ayahuasca Foundation working with uh, male or female uh, curanderos or mixed? We have, I mean, we basically work with one family, which is Don Enrique and Doña Vilma, who are husband and wife. Um, Don Enrique has two brothers that we work with, Don Miguel and Don Romer, and also his father, Don Marco, and Vilma's father, Don Benjamin. Um, so there are two familial lineages of coranderismo within the Shipibo culture, and then the children, I guess, if you want to call them uh, Don Enrique and Vilma, of these grand maestros within their own communities married, so they kind of uh, created this even stronger family of coranderos, and so we work with just that family or those two familial generational lineages. Nobody knows for sure, but have you ever come across any of, of these Coranderos mentioning how long the tradition they're practicing is? Like for how in in the past? I mean their you know their answers would not be very scientific. It would be like, oh, for generations and generations and generations. But um, you know, I, I the only like anthropological data I believe was Someone um, found a, a stone chalice that I guess is on display in a museum in Ecuador that had ayahuasca residue in it, and apparently that was dated back 2,500 years. I think that Jeremy Narby, in his book, um, The Cosmic Serpent, 
estimated that it was probably 10,000 years old, but like you said, nobody really knows for sure. I've also noticed, because I've only experienced ceremonies with Icarus only, but I've heard online there's also Icarus with some sort of, uh, not a drum, but some sort of beat uh, instrument. Uh, do you use that? Um, well, I think that you also worked with the Shipibo, so the Shipibo don't typically use any accompaniment, if you want to call it that, but... Um, but a lot of the tribes, and I think the or the originators or the discoverers of the tool chacapa, which is made from the leaves named of the same plant chacapa, um, were the Aguahun. And the Aguahun then taught the or gave the chacapa the chacapa to a lot of the surrounding tribes. So there's quite a, a lot of coranderos that use the chacapa, and that is like used rhythmically. Um, and so it can be considered to be kind of like a, a rhythm instrument that accompanies the singing. But um, but I work with the Shipibo also. So my first teacher used a chikapa. Actually, my first three teachers used chikapas. Um, and I, I think the Shipibo are actually in the minority as for coranderos that don't use the chikapa or, or some type of uh, rhythmic instrument. Um, yeah, so my teacher... Um, who's Shipibo doesn't use a Chikapa, but he knows how to use a Chikapa. And um, the way he says is that he always has his Chikapa, but it's in spirit. So his spirit uses a Chikapa, but he doesn't have one that he uses physically. How how have you managed to, or maybe you haven't, uh, avoid brujos? Or I don't know how you pronounce it, but I call them the, the Sith Lords of Shamanism. <laughs> Sure. Um, I think if you if you work with Corinderismo uh, for as long as I have, it's going to be hard to to avoid. Um, it's just part of the process, unfortunately, part of the the reality that is this work, especially done in the Amazon rainforest. Um, so I, you know, I, there are techniques and methods that you use, and you just do your best to try to keep yourself protected and keep yourself safe. Uh, the, the key to it would definitely be by dieting, um, you know, plants used specifically for protection and maintaining those diets and, you know, you know keeping your, your vigilance on all of your, all of the techniques and methods you used and, you know, never, never forgetting about it, like never forgetting that you need to always remember to be protected. The, the photos I've seen of, of brujos uh, that have been exposed, um, I think they you can tell from just their their eyes or how they look somehow, like their how they radiate through their eyes. That's at least what I've noticed seeing those photos, but I've never met one in reality. Of course. Well, you probably have. I mean, obviously, you're never gonna have someone just introduce themselves that way, but. Um, but yeah, like I guess the best brujos are the ones that you never know are doing it, right? Um, but it's a it's a complicated topic, and um, it's you know it's just something that everyone I guess gets involved with at some point or or ha is affected by it. My my strategy is always kind of like to not talk about it that much, not to like bring it up to the surface because it tends in life in general that what you spend your time thinking about and talking about ends up being more in your life than the things that you don't. So I kind of just uh, look at the working with light and healing people and, and teaching and doing the work that I want to be doing and spend my time focusing on that and rather than you know worrying about the, the, the things that I don't want to have happen. Yeah, it's only worth mentioning so people always you know, have have a reference or a friend had tried someone and give good reference. That's usually is the best way to avoid it. Sure. I mean, the key is really like so many, like the entire science of of coranderismo is all um, founded in doing plant diets, and um, that's actually something that I think has become uh, quite confusing as Westerners are trying to understand the tradition um, because there's now something called the, 
the ayahuasca diet, which is not really a part of the tradition. Um, and so it's made the word diet like confusing, but the the traditional diet, the dieta, like a plant diet, is, is what makes coranderos coranderos. And uh, if you're a student of coranderismo, that means that you're doing dietas. And, and those dietas that you do are done for a lot of different reasons and sometimes those dietas are done specifically for protection. You diet a plant uh, like katawa for example which is like a, a tree that has poisonous spikes all over it. You diet that plant uh, for one of the main reasons is for protection so that it will protect you and there are a number of plants that people uh, that coranderos diet specifically to have protection and of course there are a number of plants that Coranderos diet specifically to learn and those would be considered like the teacher plants and, and some of those plants are specific to uh, endowing certain gifts and certain powers and abilities to coranderos and what makes a corandero able to heal people is really the relationships that they build with the plant spirits and the way that you build these relationships with plant spirits is through plant dietas and so drinking ayahuasca even a thousand times will only get you so far compared to what a powerful diet will do for you or a diet that's done correctly and normally it's, if you speak to a corandero um, you know that within within the world of coranderos it's really about what diets you've done or how many diets you've done or for how long you've dieted that kind of is a measure for the level that you've attained as a corandero and uh, that's part of that, that. That's an aspect that I think that is a little bit more difficult to understand when people are trying to understand the tradition and the fact that, like the the ayahuasca diet, which was really developed as a way to keep tourists safe who are coming from cultures where we're taking pharmaceutical medication and eating a lot of bizarre foods and things like that, um, to keep those people safe but it is based on a traditional plant diet, but whereas a traditional plant diet is a true contract between a plant spirit and uh, the person, the corandero or the student, um, the ayahuasca diet is really just kind of like a set of recommendations to make sure that nothing bad happens to you. So there's a difference and for that reason like you'll see that the ayahuasca diet has a wide variety of what is okay to do or to eat, um, whereas a plant dieta, because it is within the tradition, is much more, I guess, universal, even though there are discrepancies, of course, based on which plant you're going to be dieting and also the teacher and the arrangements that that person has or relationships they have with the plant spirit because those contracts are negotiable as well. So it does get a little bit complicated and it's not that easy to simply explain it either. But um, but the, the the bottom line is that the plant diets are what will provide you protection and what will also provide you with the teachings and provide you with those ikaros and the abilities and what makes a healer is their, their diets. As for the ayahuasca diet, I also think, or this is how I use it, is uh, I don't think it makes that much difference Physically, I think it's more that if you diet properly, the ayahuasca diet for a month before the ceremony, if you then you kind of thinking about it every time you eat because you have to concentrate on how you make your food. So it makes you like focus on what you're about to do. So when you actually do the ceremony, you are more, you know, in the moment than if you would just not think about what you eat and not think about it at all and just go down and drink. That's that's how I see it. I agree totally. I think there's that uh, that mental aspect to it, and and I think like I mean honestly, the dieta is not you know our Western use of the word diet usually refers to what we eat. That's like how how we think about that word, but within the tradition, the dieta is much more than just what you eat, and it's not something that happens only when you sit down at the dinner table it's it's a 24 hour process per day um, but like you said like just having a constant reminder that you are going to be doing this or that you are like on a particular path 
uh, is really helpful um, in forming relationships. The same can be understood. I mean, if you're thinking about your partner or your friend or your family member uh, a, a lot of times a day, then chances are you're going to be cultivating a good energy and a good and building a good relationship with that person. Like if you have a husband or a wife and every day you're thinking about them and every hour or every few hours you're thinking about them, then chances are you're going to build a, a, a strong relationship with that person. And that's essentially what the dieta is doing also. Uh, every relationship, in fact, almost the definition of relationship is in the sacrifice. The most famous, you know, uh, sacrifice in relationships would be marriage, where you have this like, it's kind of like a contract. You sign this contract that you're not going to have intimate relations with anyone else except this one person. So you're making this large sacrifice for this one person, but you're willing to do that because it will deepen that relationship and that you feel like the deepening that relationship is of more value than having any other relationships of that nature. And so, and, and friendship too, to a lesser degree, but there's sacrifice involved as well. Like if a friend needs you to help them or needs you to listen to them, then part of being a friend is to do that, to provide the help they need and to them when they need. And, you know, you call your friend at three in the morning to bail you out of jail. If it's really your friend, then they're going to do that, and no matter what they're involved in. And if they don't, then that's going to alter the relationship and the depths of the friendship that you have with them. So within every relationship that we have, there's a sacrifice involved, but it's a sacrifice that we're willing to make because we see the value of the relationship as greater than the sacrifice then we're, that we're going to make. And so doing a plant dieta or even the ayahuasca diet is the same thing. It's, it's a way to demonstrate our determination to build this relationship, a way to show what we're willing to give up in order to have this relationship. And so the more serious you want to take it, like if you want to get married, then you're willing to sacrifice the most, you know. And uh, and so that to me is like I think how I understand the diet to be, which is really about a determination, uh, sorry, a demonstration of my determination. And that can be personal as well to show yourself like how serious you are about it. But I definitely would agree that the physical aspects would be the very last it would be like a spiritual aspects and the emotional aspects and mental aspects and the spiritual aspects of it would be the very last and, and only really in the case of taking like antidepressant medications or something where there's clearly a danger um, would come into play in terms of the physical dimension. Last time I was in Peru, I was told that one of the most hardcore dietas was to diet on the tree Ayahuma. I think it's pronounced Ayahuma. Do you know this one? Yeah, I have dieted Ioma. Um, you know, it depends on who you talk to, obviously, um, because it's relationships, and relationships are particular to each person, and you might have a great relationship with someone, and someone else might think that that same person is really difficult to have a relationship with. Um, if you talk to somebody's ex-husband or ex-wife, you know, but talk to their current husband and current wife, you know, you might see a difference in how they describe each other. But, um, but yeah, like there are certain plants that are kind of agreed upon as being more strict in the terms of their contractual agreements in the diet. And so certain plant spirits really demand that a diet be no less than a particular amount of time and that the, uh, the terms in terms of like uh, what is okay to do or eat during the diet um, is, is more strict with a particular plant spirit than another and and um, and so in like world of, of coranderos they know either from their own experiences or from their ancestors or teachers telling them uh, which of those plants are are more or less um, 
strict, but again, especially when you have a teacher uh, who's going to open your diet, which every student starts by having their teacher open their diets for them, uh, which means that their teacher is the one negotiating those terms for them. If a teacher has developed a really good relationship with a plant, even though it may have more strict personality characteristics, their relationship with them might be such that they're more lenient with them or more forgiving of them because they have that relationship developed and so then they can bargain so to speak or negotiate for the terms of the diet for their students and have their students not have to have such a difficult or strict um, diet that because of that relationship if that makes any sense. Uh, ever since ayahuasca has become more and more mainstream I guess you could call it uh, I've seen more of this thing where you know people order it in the post and then they take it alone in their apartment and I, I, um, I, I'm just afraid it's gonna turn bad and give it a bad reputation and just destroy the whole thing that could be a very good thing for humanity do you have any thoughts on this uh, yeah I mean I I, I think that, I, you know, I'd like to set up an experiment and, and this year, um, in, in, even last year, the Ayahuasca Foundation started getting involved more with research and this year we'll be getting more involved with research and next year we'll really be um, to adding research on a serious level to the programs and, and the work that we do. But uh, one of the first research projects that I'd like to do is to make a comparison across four um, activities or four uh, techniques, I guess. And one would be a group of people that just sit for four or five hours and think about their issues in an attempt to find solutions to them um, individually, just in your room. Uh, and then a group of people where you would drink ayahuasca also on your own in the hopes of you know resolving issues or healing yourself um, and then a group of people that would attend an ayahuasca ceremony but not drink ayahuasca and then finally a group of people that attend an ayahuasca ceremony and do drink ayahuasca and I think that the the level of it will correlate to the same order that I just gave those examples. I think that while there would be benefit, the least amount of benefit would come from people that were just sitting thinking about their issues. And then there would also be benefit and a greater level of benefit for people that drank ayahuasca but did not have a ceremony setting or were not led by a corandero. But I think there would be greater benefit than that group for people that did not drink ayahuasca but did attend a ceremony led by a corandero and I think the greatest level of benefit would then of course be people that do drink ayahuasca in a ceremony so I think that there is benefit to people drinking ayahuasca on their own but of course there there is also risks um, and you know there the, the risks involved I I don't think they're that different than risks that are completely acceptable for all of us. I mean, no one, you know, if you're going to buy a motorcycle, then there's a lot of risks involved there. And I think that the risks of owning a motorcycle would probably be higher, um, much higher even if you were to look at statistics, if there were there to look at, um, that something bad would happen to you uh, just simply by owning and driving a motorcycle. But in our society, like, no one really, you know, we're not trying to make motorcycles illegal, you know, um, it's just that you understand the risks that are involved in entering into that activity. And, you know, drinking ayahuasca on your own is very similar. Of course, we're dealing with something that's already been outlawed and prohibited in many countries. So it's as if, uh, you know, like you had made the motorcycle illegal and now people are trying to ride the motorcycle on their own. If they weren't illegal, then there would probably be safer because they could integrate the use of ayahuasca into their legislation and there could be classes that would openly help people to understand it and 
you know, there there would be an uh, easier way to have discussions about it that would most likely benefit it. So I'm certainly like for the the legalization of our ability to do what we want to do to ourselves. Um, and I think that would probably be more at the heart of the risks than the actual risks themselves, which are honestly probably similar to riding a bike in the city, you know, like if you ride a bicycle, and I'm, I mean just a regular bicycle in the city, there's a chance you'll get hit by a car. Um, but if you're willing to take that chance, then go for it. And hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people do that every day, and some of them get hit by cars, you know. Uh, but no one can outlying the bicycle for it, you know. They don't blame the bicycle. It's the it's a, your decision to make those choices and you live with the consequences. Yeah. With psychedelics of any type, it's always the psychedelic that is blamed <laughs> when something happens, unfortunately. Right. Uh, it's, a, it's a shame. Um, but yet somehow, like, how many people die of drunk driving accidents and yet alcohol is not prohibited so it's it's you know it's a bizarre like obviously they haven't figured it out <laughs> what the hell they're doing because if you look at how many people die in automobile accidents that are directly related to alcohol and of course no one no one blames the car in that case um, you know they blame the alcohol but yet not enough to prohibit it. So if we're if we're going to like allow people to drive drunk and get themselves killed or kill other people, uh, then the last thing we should be worried about is someone that wants to drink ayahuasca by themselves and you know fall down the stairs of their apartment or something. For me, it would be more. I would be more afraid of having a very difficult uh, time mentally doing it alone and uh, I can imagine some of those ceremonies I've done that were the most horrible also the most healing of course in the end but the most horrible to go through if I've been alone I don't know what what would have happened it would have been ho extremely frightening I think so I I definitely for me anyway I need uh, to have the Icarus and somebody stinging them uh, near me to just as an anchor of some sort. Well, there's uh, you know there's several aspects to that. If you drank with a corandero that knows what they're doing, then they were opening up this world, this dimension, and so they were uh, basically allowing you to gain access to more of it than would be available on your own. Typically, um, you know, each individual is their own person and perhaps has their own abilities or skills or willpower or um, relationships that they've built already for whatever reason or with, ever, with whatever techniques and methods. And, but a Corandero is typically using those relationships that they have built to help you go deeper and in doing that have allowed you to get to places that might be really challenging but are also going to be very rewarding in the outcome of them and the, the, the depth of healing that take place is possible because of being able to go to those deep places which can also you know require that you need help from someone uh, a corandero to you know manage your, your way around there so you might not get to the that depth level that would require as much help if you were on your own because a corandero wasn't wasn't there to open those doors for you or to call in those spirits for you or to uh, kind of guide you into a, a place where you could be able to do that work. Um, but also, it's really hard for us to say because when you have the ability to ask for help or you know that someone will come over that knows more and you can kind of trust in them and and, and put your hands in there, you know, put your life in their hands and, and, and let them figure it out and work for it, then obviously you're like, wow, what would I have done without that? But, but if you don't have that option, then it might actually like pull you, you know, make you step up and, and kind of figure things out and find a power within you that you, you, you wouldn't have found if you had been able to like call for help. So, well, I definitely think that it's, 
and a much better idea to drink ayahuasca with someone that knows what they're doing. I really feel that way more because you, I, I feel so strongly that the level of benefit that you'll get out of the experience will be much higher, but not so much because I fear that someone will have horrible things happen to them. Now, I would be more worried about people using analogs, like um, trying to understand ayahuasca chemically to me is an inaccurate idea um, that just ignores the spirit. And so if you like think, oh, well, I'll instead of using ayahuasca, I'll use Syrian rue, and instead of using tracuna, I'll use acacia or something, um, and then it should produce the same results. I would be much worried, more worried about people doing it that way. Um, ayahuasca is not just reducible to an MAO inhibitor, and uh, I think it's really unfair, and, and not just unfair, but just inaccurate to try to reduce it to such, and neither is it accurate to just call Chakruna a, a DMT source. Um, I think that the materialist view of trying to understand the ayahuasca experience is, is definitely not getting it all. And to reduce it down to a chemical experience is, is really missing out on the truth and reality of it, which is the consciousness involved and the spirits involved. And if you don't believe in the spirits, then that's your prerogative. But if you respect the people that have researched and developed the science of plant medicine, for the thousands of years or however long they have in the Amazon rainforest, they certainly never talk about DMT or MAOIs. They talk all about plant spirits and I think it would be to our benefit to attempt to understand it the way that they do um, simply because I don't think that there's not a reason and a good reason for why they do think it that way. Um, if you think about it on a spiritual method, um, using Syrian rue instead of ayahuasca you're now using a different plant spirit. You're building a relationship with a different plant spirit. And what's the personality of this plant spirit like? And what are they, you know, what, what is their agenda? What are they offering? And there's not enough evidence of historical use for us to be sure that that's even that safe. And particularly with the Syrian root, because that's a powerful, a popular one. If you look at the plant, I mean, the plant, it, 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 it like produces a, a venom to kill the plants around it so that it has more space to grow. And it's not exactly like a friendly vine that likes to wrap around other plants and, and connect to trees and stuff. And, you know, it's, it has very different properties, even just looking at it from a physical standpoint, let alone getting to know it on a spiritual basis. So. If anything, I, I'm, I'm not so worried about people that want to actually make ayahuasca from the vine and chacruna leaves and do it on their own because I, I don't think that that's terribly unsafe or dangerous provided that they're you know taking the precautions with the information available, especially not taking SSRIs or antidepressant medication or really any pharmaceutical medication and hopefully respecting the idea of the diet a little bit better kind of for the reasons that you gave and also for the ones that I mentioned. But if you are going to be using the ad, uh, analogs or the plants that have similar chemical properties, that's where I begin to worry because there's so many other things that can happen and unfortunately I've heard stories of those things happening where people tried to make an analog brew and ended up in the hospital and don't remember how they got there and they're tied down to a hospital bed, no idea what happened. And uh, So yeah, I, I'm not that worried about ayahuasca use, but I am worried about the other stuff that people associate with ayahuasca that in my opinion really has nothing to do with ayahuasca. And also, uh, don't drink ayahuasca mixed with Datura I've read also. That that's not a good combination either. Right, I definitely would recommend to not do that. Um, but however, my first teacher did use Datura. Um, he, you know, he he used it in a dosage that was safe. And honestly, I didn't even know about that stuff because he was my first teacher. Um, I just had very profound experiences. So, you know, I, I would of course say if you're going to do this on your own. You know, be as safe as possible for sure across the board in every sense that you can. 
Um, and that to me definitely would be to stay away from Datura. But Datura, and in fact, it, it shouldn't be called Datura because it's actually a Brugmansia plant. Um, it's just been called Datura because of the fame of Datura, but I, I don't think it's actually in the. It's called Toei in the Amazon. Um, it's a tremendously powerful medicinal plant, and so it has wonderful properties, but it also the relationship that needs to be built with it in order to work with it is uh, not that easy to accomplish and so it can really mess people up and so it's best to stay away from it unless you have a teacher or someone that can properly introduce you and can look after you if you do want to build a relationship with it but for the most part it would be best to just stay away from it. One thing I think is interesting also with the ayahuasca is that it, it doesn't seem to have any logic when it comes to the dose. Like, I can drink three glasses, nothing happens, and then or drink half a glass and it's the most intense experience ever, or a person next to me, nothing happens for like seven ceremonies in a row, and I don't understand. I mean, they say like, oh, sh- that person didn't surrender properly or something, but... I mean, I don't know how you could resist uh, not having a, a very visual experience. How do you have anything to say about this? Uh, I, you know, I wish that I could. I've tried my best to try to understand it in an attempt to figure it out, enabling me to enhance people's experiences that have come down. Um, I think what I've come to conclude is that consciousness is not something that I'm going to just figure out and uh, it's an equation that has an infinite number of factors and I just couldn't you know figure out why I myself have had the same situations where you know you drink ayahuasca with a group of people it's all the same ayahuasca how is it that some people literally have nothing happen to them and some people are literally leaving your body and flying to other planets and talking to extraterrestrials, you know, like and everything in between. Um, so I definitely say that would say that what we could deduce is definitely that it's a personal experience and that those factors will be involved in the person. But what exactly those factors are, I don't think that I'll ever be able to figure that out. Um, it's just too many. I mean, you'd have to like try to keep track of every single thought or something that happened, you know. And I don't know. Like it's uh, it's very very complicated. But one thing I will say is that I I do think that your mind is far more powerful than the ayahuasca experience, or at least your own consciousness. So you could, like, I have definitely experienced, um, you know, being completely in another dimension, you know, full on spirits all around me and then have someone call my name and, and be required to function in the physical dimension and almost instantaneously all of those visions disappear. So I do think that our own consciousness will definitely trump whatever ayahuasca is producing if we need to do that and therefore like it might do it if we don't want it to, what there again lies, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't know how to make that happen better. Uh, basically, I don't, you know, you can try to figure it out for yourself and, and try to come up with your own techniques and things like that, but I don't think I could ever come up with some general rule for that would apply to everyone. So if people want to uh, visit the Ayahuasca Foundation, how can they go about doing that? Well, the easiest thing would be to go onto the website ayahuascafoundation.org, and um, there you'll find out all the information you need to find out our schedule of uh, programs about the courses that we hold at our Coronado School, the retreats that we hold at our retreat center, and um, soon there'll be some information about the research that we'll be getting involved in next year, and uh, all the information that we can provide you, or at least that we think that we can, uh, is on that website, but you can also feel free to contact me through that website, and I'll answer any other questions or concerns that you might have. Cool. Well, thank you a lot for talking to me. No worries. Hey, thank you for doing this. I think you're doing a great job. If you want to check out 
more of the Ayahuasca Foundation and Carlos Tanner, then go to ayahuascafoundation.org. As always with an episode about Ayahuasca, I cannot resist to end with an Icaro. This one is simply titled number 14 and is from an album called Selva Madre Ayahuasca. The Icaros has been recorded by an ayahuasca retreat that you can find at selvamadre.com. That's S-E-L-V-A-M-A-D-R-E.com. All the links will also be available in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. Freedom is in the mind. Hey, 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 hey,